Acts chapter 9 this morning, continuing on in the narrative following the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. It's quite dramatic. Unexpectedly, Saul was met by the very one he was trying to wipe out and remove his memory and consciousness from the earth. So the first 19 verses of Acts 9 talk about Saul's conversion. But this morning we're going to take a peek at Saul's further development. Conversion, obviously the necessary beginning. Being baptized with the Holy Spirit as he was, got things started for him on the life that he would live until the Lord took him home. That there was much more that the Lord would do in Saul's life after his Damascus Road experience. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Let's pray. We ask, Lord, that you would use your word now in our hearts, because as we study this, we'll see that ways in which you worked in Paul's life, Saul's life, to make him Paul, are ways you work in our lives, to make us those individuals that can give glory to you and and bear the fruit of Jesus and and honor you in that way. So we ask, Lord, that you would <clears throat> strengthen our minds and our hearts. Give us a willingness from your Spirit to be hearers of the Word and doers of the Word at the same time. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So following Jesus, also known as the Christian life, begins the moment a person receives the life of Jesus by believing the gospel. That's when it begins. By receiving his resurrection life, the the clock begins to tick. Our Christian life has officially began. Jesus talked about this in John 7. He said on the last day, the great day of the feast, John writes, he said, Jesus stood and cried out and said, if anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart or his innermost being will flow rivers or torrents of living water. And John adds the comment, he was speaking of the Holy Spirit, whom those believing in Jesus would receive. So just like when a baby is born, that's just the beginning. And so it is with the new believer. It's just the beginning. There's a whole lot more to come. There's that learning Bible doctrine, learning what the Bible teaches, not just the the various specific systematic areas of doctrine, but what is the book of Romans all about? What is Galatians all about? Why was the book of Judges written? Why is the book of Ruth written? What's the story of Job really telling? And what does this all have to do with me and you? That's what begins to happen as we are learning what the Bible teaches. And then there's the ongoing process of developing Christ-like character, which doesn't end until we meet the Lord Jesus. In fact, it's not a stretch to say that the whole purpose for God creating the universe and creating human beings to live in that universe is to give them the free will choice to have a relationship with him and thus be part of his family. God wanted to extend what he is to himself from all eternity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He wanted to extend that to a group of beings that would voluntarily choose to love him. And His plan for that group of beings, human beings, is that we be conformed into the image of Christ. You can read about that, of course, in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30. But there's the development of Christ-like character. That never stops. And then there's the learning of how to depend upon the Holy Spirit. And then there's the discovery of our calling. What has the Lord called me to be, to do? What's my role in the body of Christ? How do I contribute to the great commission that Jesus gave to his first disciples? And then there's the discovery of the spiritual gifts 
and the ministries to which the Lord calls us. All of these things are part of the process after we become born again. Born again is just the start. There's a lifetime process of continuing to move in those directions. And it doesn't stop until the Lord decides, I'm going to take your spirit out of your body and bring you home to be with me. Your human body, that's going to die. Your spirit is going to live with me forever. And you're going to receive a new body at that time as well. Until that moment happens, he's got a plan and a purpose for every one of us. Like you said, looking forward. That's the bottom line. That's what we do. So we look at Paul's story, Saul's port story. We learn about his development because these things happened in him as well. So let's read chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. Immediately, this is right after his conversion, he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. I'm going to stop there. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. That's a big, that's a big statement. Immediately he preached, preached the Messiah in the synagogues that he's the Son of God. Immediately he preached the Anointed One that he is the Son of God. He preached that message in the synagogues. Preached it, which means to herald this, to proclaim it. So he was all about just making this news known. He just met him. Jesus just introduced himself to him. And this was exciting to Paul and Saul. And so he was telling it everywhere he could, and especially in the synagogues. Now this is interesting because prior to the death and burial and resurrection of Christ, the message of John the Baptist and the message of Jesus was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The reign of God in heaven has arrived here on earth for those that want to receive it and be part of it. And that was basically the message. And so it was preached by John the Baptist as well as by Jesus. But now that Jesus has come, the message has been clarified and made more succinct and more specific. Now the message is, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So the message goes from being about a kingdom that's coming to a person who is the king that has come. So our message, the message of Saul of Tarsus, was the message of a person. And he heralded that person. He preached that person in the synagogues. That he is indeed the Son of God. Note in the text that it says, in verse 20, that he immediately preached the Messiah, the Christ, and the synagogues that he's the Son of God. This started happening right away. Now, it doesn't take a lot of theological training or doctrinal understanding to be able to make this proclamation that the Messiah, Jesus, is the Son of God. He didn't have to know a lot of theology to do that. He just had to believe that those things were true. And so Paul, Saul, was immediately able to make that proclamation, as is true for any new convert. As soon as life comes, what happens? Most people, when they're born again, they start telling everybody that is in their sphere. The friends that they know, the people they went to school with, their neighbors, people that they have close relationships with, distant relatives that are actually far away geographically but close in heart. Everybody gets to hear it. I remember when when I was converted, I had friends knock on my front door. And they said, Holdridge, I heard that something happened to you and it has to do with being a Jesus freak. What happened? Tell me the story. And they would sit down and let me tell the story. And that happened with great frequency, because I knew a lot of people, a lot of people knew me. And some of them did receive Christ, thankfully. And it's wonderful. Still have a relationship with them today. But what happens, unfortunately, we have this immediate zeal to tell others about this new life that we've received, but a lot of times the zeal ends. And a lot of times the reason the zeal 
tends to end is because that initial pool of people with whom we've had relationship, that we've known, that we've been connected with, that pool dries up. We've exhausted most of those resources in terms of who do we tell now? And so now we have to be praying for opportunities and initiating new relationships to have opportunities so that we can tell others about the gospel. And this is where a lot of people don't move forward. They don't initiate new relationships. There are way too many of us who don't really even have any relationships with those that don't know Christ. Well, how can I reach somebody if I don't have a relationship with them and love them and care about them no matter what they're doing uh, because we want to reach them with the gospel. But for Saul, that wasn't his problem. He immediately went into the synagogues, which was an open door for him as a Pharisee who had been converted to preach this message. Verse 21 goes on in our story of Saul. and It says that, All who heard about this conversion, of course, and his preaching this message, they were amazed. And they said, is this not he who destroyed those who called on the name, on this name in Jerusalem, and has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? Isn't this the one who destroyed believers and bound them up to send them to stand trial for being a Christian in Jerusalem? Isn't this the same guy? I mean, I think he looks like him. He's familiar to us all. Isn't this the same one? And they were absolutely amazed. They were amazed that somebody like Saul could be converted. They were amazed that somebody like this maniac, Saul of Tarsus, could be forgiven and born again. And he was acting like a maniac in his zeal to kill and put out the church. Even someone like this can be forgiven. This is why when Paul later wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he told Timothy that his conversion, his own conversion, was was a pattern to anyone else who would believe in Jesus for eternal life after this. And so, you know, you, you're, not, you're not certain whether you can be saved or you can be forgiven. Just look at Saul of Tarsus. He was saved. He was forgiven. And his life is a pattern which is an example to anybody else to give them hope. All these things happened, this amazement over Saul's new birth. This all took place in Damascus, and judging by the verses that come after this, it's clear that the true believers in Damascus embraced Saul and considered his conversion to be genuine. So he begins to grow in the word of God. Verse 22, But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Jerusalem, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. So he increased all the more in strength. The word used there for strength, he increased in strength, is the word that we get dynamite from. It's the same connection to what Jesus had said in Acts 1.8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses. Dunamis. So he increased in strength, which means he increased in the Spirit of God in his presence and purpose in his life. But we also know he grew in the Word. Because you can't grow physically without good nutrition. You can grow, but not well. Good nutrition is essential. So we have the nutrition of the Word of God, of course. The Bible is our food. And Jesus said we don't live by bread only, physical bread, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's the manna of God from heaven to us, written in 66 books that we have uh, on our laps or in our devices. It's wonderful, this word of God. He grew in the word of God. And he confounded, notice the text tells us, he confounded the Jews. That is, they were... They were perplexed and amazed by what they were hearing. He confounded the Jews in Damascus, and he was now able to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Anointed One, that Jesus is the Christ. 
Initially, he proclaimed the Christ, that he's the Son of God. But now he's gone on from that, and he's moved deeper into it. Now he's able to actually prove it. Using the scriptures, he's able to prove that Jesus is the Messiah that had been predicted in all of the Old Testament scriptures. Now many believe that it was in the gap between verses 21 and 22, when it says that Saul increased all the more in strength, that this is the time frame during which Saul, Paul, ended up going into Arabia for a few years. And, of course, this is written about in the book of Galatians. And in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul writes, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. In other words, I didn't talk to human beings about this calling or my message. Nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. Now we don't have a lot of detail about this trip to Arabia, but it's not hard to imagine Saul with a sack over his back full of Old Testament scrolls, going out into Arabia, being alone by himself, disassociated and disconnected from human contact, probably a lot of it, and just spending his time unrolling those scrolls, pouring over those scrolls to find out all that he could about all of the old covenant connections to this Jesus of Nazareth that he now loved and was proclaiming. And he grew in his theology. And later on, when he wrote the books that the Holy Spirit inspired him to write in the New Testament, he made reference to the things that the Holy Spirit showed him and that human beings didn't show him. For example, Saul of Tarsus, Paul the Apostle, was shown what happened on the night of the Lord's Supper without having ever been there or having talked to anybody about it. He knew. How did he know? By divine revelation. The Lord showed these things to him. And there were many other things, like the mysteries that he refers to. A mystery isn't something that is unknowable or impossible to discover what it means. A mystery in the Bible is simply something that has been previously unrevealed, but now is revealed. And so there's the mystery of the church, the mystery of the body of Christ, the mystery of iniquity, all of these kinds of things that are mysteries that are talked about in the New Testament. These are things that that the Lord spoke to Paul about and spoke into him. And I think mostly he understood, as a, as a result of his time in Arabia, he understood the gospel itself. How could he write something like the book of Romans, which everybody acknowledges is his opus? The greatest New Testament book concerning the gospel of Jesus and what it means for our lives is the book of Romans. I mean, it is, it is an incredible, incredible work of the Spirit through a human author. How did he get all that? Well, I think it started out there in the Arabian wilderness with his scrolls. And so now he comes back to Damascus after being gone for a while. And now what is he able to do? He's able to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. Wow. Loaded loaded for bear. I mean, he he was ready to go. He had the message, and he, he had everything in the scriptures to back it. And so he loved to go to the synagogues and loved to preach uh, to his Jewish brethren uh, this great message. Of course, the Lord's primary calling wasn't uh, upon Paul's life to be the apostle to the Jews. Ironically, the Lord gave that particular moniker to Peter, who you would think would be the great candidate that the Lord would pick to be the apostle to the Gentiles. But no, he wasn't. He was the apostle to the Jews, and, and Paul himself was the apostle to the Gentiles. And there was some training. I mean, he did. He was born in Tarsus, which was a, uh, a Roman city, 
and he spent early childhood years there, was familiar with Greek uh, culture and with Roman culture and familiar in all of the writings of those cultures, the different philosophers and so on. He was very well equipped, but nobody, no one would have thought or anticipated that Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee, would become the apostle to the Gentiles. But he was a quick study. He went out into the ministry to the Gentiles and he, be, he learned this important lesson that wherever I am, I'm going to connect with those people where they are. And to the Jew, I'll be a Jew. To the Gentile, I'll be a Gentile. I will become whatever I need to become to have a connection with them and with their hearts so that I can give to them this great message of Jesus Christ. And of course, that's a pattern for us as well. So he's now convincing them that Jesus is the Messiah from the Scriptures, but it's not well-received as we see in verses 23 through 25. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. That is, the Jews who didn't believe his message. Some got angry. This is going to be a repeated theme in in Paul's life. The Jews would seek to kill him. He had a lot of trouble from the Jews. Five times he received 39 stripes from from the Jewish people. He was beaten with rods by the Jewish people. When he was in Lystra, they stoned him and they thought he was dead. They dragged him outside of the city and left him there as dead. But the disciples gathered around him and remarkably he got up. And what did he do after he got up, after having been stoned in Lystra? He went right back into Lystra. I mean, this was, this was an, ama- uh, an amazing man, full of the boldness and the power and bravado of the Holy Spirit. But the Jews, in this case, plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, which was also going to be a repeated pattern. Uh, the Lord, know, of course, knows what human beings are thinking, and so he makes sure that others know what human beings are thinking to do to Saul or Paul, and he gets news of it, and so he's able to avoid the trap that they were laying for him. They watch the gates day and night, it says, to kill him. Well, then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket, the wall of Damascus. And these walls would have windows uh, that faced the the outside, the exterior, beyond the walls of the city. And so that's what they did. He can't get out through the gates because everybody's watching him. All the eyes are upon him. So they just did it this way. They, They took a large basket, picture a large wicker basket, ropes, and then got told Paul to get in it, and they lowered him down outside of the wall. It reached the bottom, uh, tipped over. He got out, and he fled for his life. They got him out of that danger spot by doing this particular thing. The unbelieving Jews, the hassle that there was against Saul because of his message. He was being persecuted, obviously, for righteousness' sake. Now this event here where he escapes the city of Damascus and escapes the unbelieving Jews that wanted to kill him, he later talked about this in in his letter to the the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Now you're going to remember 2 Corinthians 11 because it's the chapter where Paul feels like he is compelled to boast in writing to the Corinthians. Why did he feel he was compelled to boast to the Corinthians in his letter? Because there was a small minority within that church that was in great opposition to his leadership, to his preaching style, to his apostleship. They just didn't want him around. They were uh, opposers, and they wanted the power and the position themselves. So they opposed his apostleship, Of course, Paul wasn't even in Corinth at the time. And so when he wrote his letter, he gave to them, 2 Corinthians did, he gave to them the nature of true apostolic ministry. That's what 2 Corinthians is about. But then he gets to chapter 11 and he, he actually talks about some of the things and he hated even doing it. That, that he had been doing and that he had been up to in his many years of ministry. And so for him it was boasting and it was 
embarrassing that he even had to do it, but he only did it because he he needed to preserve this church, and they were in danger of following these yahoos that were trying to take everything over themselves. But then, at the end of that boasting section in 2 Corinthians 11, he says in verse 30, if I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. That's what he really wanted to do. He didn't want to boast about his achievements. He would rather boast about his weaknesses, his infirmities. He was a humble man. So this is what he says. He says, The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. In Damascus, the governor, under Aretas the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison, desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. It's interesting, isn't it? Saul was in danger from the unbelieving Jews. We saw that in Acts chapter 9. And that perhaps is why he was arrested by uh, the governor under Aretas the king. He was arrested because Paul was a Roman citizen. And you can't have a Roman citizen being subject to a lynch mob in a Roman city. That's going to make that governor and that king in real big trouble with the Roman government. And they could very well lose their lives if they let that type of thing happen to a Roman citizen. So it's very likely that Saul was arrested to avoid or what they wanted to arrest him uh, so that he would avoid the plotting of the Jews that were trying to kill him. Because Aretas, being the uh, the governor, uh, un, well, Aretas the king and then the governor under him was responsible for peace in that district. Jews wanted to kill Saul, but the officials wanted to arrest him to put him in protective Custody until at least there could be a trial. So the disciples were the ones that ended up putting him in the basket and he escapes the whole thing, something he'd never forget. And this is what he says about it, and we just read it. This is the thing that I'll boast about. I'll, I'm going to boast about something that is so humiliating to me, so disgraceful, so embarrassing for me to even talk about it, but it happened to me. I was put in a basket to escape the Jews outside of the wall of the city of Damascus, and I had to flee for my life. And, of course, if we read the New Testament, we read the book of Acts, we read the epistles, we find out that that just wasn't, that wasn't Paul, and that was not his style. To run from something? No, never. To go right back into the fray? That was Paul. To run away from it? not Paul. He always had to be persuaded not to go into danger, like when he was eventually going back to Jerusalem near the end of his ministry, where he ultimately was arrested and in custody and eventually appealed to Caesar for his freedom. But he was warned by the prophet Agabus. He was warned by the brethren, don't do it, Paul, don't do it. What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart, he said. I, I'm ready to die in, for the name of the Lord Jesus. That's who he was. But this situation here, where he was let down in a basket outside of the wall, so un-Paul, so un-Paul-like, and it was embarrassing for him. So that he considered to be a great weakness of his. As Ray Stedman puts it in his great book, Authentic Christianity, which is a, an expository study of parts of Second Corinthians, he says, actually, great changes began to happen in Saul of Tarsus's life when he became a basket case for Christ. <laughs> and I think that's so true. Because, you know, there's a, there's a time in the life, in the development of every believer, where we understand that the Lord's strength is made complete or perfect in our weakness. It's not made perfect or complete in our strengths. If that were the case, then it would be us. It would be you and me who are getting this done. And what glory does that bring to God? 
But when it's his strength operating through my weakness, I remember a woman in Monterey, a friend of mine actually, and I appreciated the comment, although at first it kind of took me back. She said, you know, Bill, you've been the pastor here for a while, and, and you're a, a, good, a good Bible teacher, but you're not much of a pastor. <laughs> and, you know, I knew her, and I knew what she was trying to say. And I had to agree with the parts of what she said that were true. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't all that relational uh, back then. I'm much more so now, but I wasn't then. And it was easy for, for me to put off an air of, uh, of not wanting to be bothered, maybe, or to get easily irritated by stuff that didn't go well with me. And that's what she meant. And so I thought, Lord, how do I deal with this? How do I deal with this, this thing called me? <laughs> I'm my biggest obstacle. And, and the Lord showed me that passage in 2 Corinthians 12 about how the, the, the Lord had allowed Paul to be afflicted with a messenger of Satan, which Paul called a thorn in the flesh, to buffet him. And Paul asked the Lord three times that it might be, be taken away from him. And the Lord said, no, not going to do it. Because this thorn has made you weak. And in your weakness, my strength is going to be perfected. You see, Saul, Paul, had received tremendous revelations from the Lord, and, and including one vision of heaven itself that was so detailed that he felt like if, if he ever told anybody the story about what he'd said or what he'd seen, it would be a criminal act to even try to repeat it. It was such a holy moment. And because of the abundance of the revelations, the Lord sent the thorn in the flesh to buffet Paul so that he wouldn't be puffed up with pride. But in that process, Paul learned this lesson that in his weakness, the Lord's strength is made perfect. So in typical Pauline fashion, his response was, well, most gladly, therefore, I will boast about my weaknesses, about my infirmities, about my needs, because when I'm weak, then he's strong. And that's what I want the most. I want him to be strong in me. So that's the way he lives. So I took that passage and I applied it to what this woman friend of mine had said. I said, Father, this is a weakness for mine of mine. You know, she makes a valid point. Good teacher, not much of a pastor. So it's a weakness. I'm just going to boast in it. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just have the attitude, Lord, that you've allowed this to be in my life. So that I'll trust in you and that your strength would be made perfect in my weakness. And slowly but surely, much more slowly than I'd like, he's been doing that in me. This was a key moment in Paul's development. Well, moving on, we can see that Paul eventually goes to Jerusalem to meet the church. And there's an initial skepticism of the discipleships or the disciples in Jerusalem. Verse 26. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him. Didn't believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him. Son of consolation. That's what Barnabas' uh, name means. But the son of consolation took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them, Barnabas told the apostles about how Paul had seen the Lord on the road and he'd spoken to him and how Paul had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And these disciples accepted Barnabas' testimony and affirmation of the calling upon Paul's life. And they believed that he was legitimate. And so Paul, it says in verse 28, was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. I think that there are times when that happens in our lives where the endorsement and the affirmation of another human being means so much to someone being open to us and accepting of us. 
I thank God for Barnabas. I know that there was a division later on that happened between Paul and Barnabas with regard to Barnabas's nephew, uh, Mark, but uh, Barnabas was a champion of the faith. And this was the most important thing that he did, is to introduce Paul to the Jerusalem disciples and let them know that this guy is the real deal. And let me tell you some examples that will show you that he was the real deal. And they accepted Barnabas' testimony because of who Barnabas was, a man of high, high character. They believed him. And later it would be Barnabas that would go to the town of Tarsus, or the city of Tarsus where Paul had been raised. He was now living there. He hadn't been doing anything in ministry yet uh, as an apostle, but the load over in Antioch was pretty heavy for Barnabas. He was trying to teach all these Gentiles. He needed help. He knew that Paul was over in, in Tarsus, and so he went to Tarsus looking for Paul. He found him. He said, come on, back over with me to Antioch because, man, the work is plentiful. And that's actually when Paul's ministry as an apostle began, was in Antioch because of Barnabas. Barnabas was a huge figure in his life. Thank God for Barnabas. And thank God for the Barnabases of this world. I want to be a Barnabas. I do. It's actually one of my personally favorite things, is to uh, connect with somebody that I know and love and and try to connect them with opportunities and uh, network with other situations that need who they are. Well, it goes on and tells us that there was ultimately, again, total rejection in Jerusalem on the part of the unbelieving Jews. Verse 29, Paul, speaking of Paul, Saul, he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus. He disputed against the Hellenists, that is the Greek-speaking Jews, but they attempted to kill him. This is going to be, again, a repeated narrative. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. So again, he escapes, and again, he avoids the plots uh, to try to kill him. Persecuted for righteousness' sake, part two. Now, Saul shares about this time in a very interesting vignette as he retells his own testimony in Acts 22. And he's going to tell us now about some of the things that happened before he was sent to Caesarea, put in a ship, and sailed back to Tarsus. And this is what was said in that retelling of his own testimony. He says, Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by, consenting, agreeing to his death, and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. What's Paul doing? He's saying, listen, you're telling me that I've got to get out of Jerusalem, that I can't reach these Hellenists. I can't reach these Jews. That's what you're telling me, Lord. But maybe you don't understand, Lord. They know me. They know my background. They know that I was a persecutor of the church. And they know that I was there when Stephen was martyred, and I fully agreed with his martyrdom, and they know that I'm different now. So I'm really the perfect candidate for the job that you need to get done here in Jerusalem. In fact, there's almost an inference that says, if you send me away from here, Lord, you're missing one of the great opportunities of your life because I'm the one that's supposed to be here in this particular situation. I absolutely love Jesus' response in the very next verse. You need to really learn how to say what you think. Jesus. Then he said to me, depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And of course, I'm being very tongue-in-cheek. He's just very direct with Paul. I don't need you here. You're not necessary here. 
I'm sending you to the Gentiles. I have another plan for your life. And it's not this. You're not going to be the apostle to the Jews. Paul, memo from heaven to you. You're not going to be the apostle. I meant not to the Gentiles, but to the Jews. You're not going to be the apostle to the Jews. I don't need you in Jerusalem, no matter what your qualifications are. No matter how much they know about you, no matter how much they see your testimony, I don't need you in this situation. So I'm going to send you far from here to the Gentiles. And that's the point in time which the disciples took Paul or Saul, brought him out of the city of Jerusalem, took him to the seacoast town of Caesarea to the north, put him in a ship, and had him sail back to Tarsus. Now here's the thing that a lot of people don't remember about Saul is that when he went to Tarsus, he was going back home where there was no ministry that he was aware of. And this wasn't going to be the place where a lot of stuff was going to happen. These are silent years, these years in Tarsus, in in Saul's life. And he was there in Tarsus for eight to ten years, not, not functioning as an apostle not being and doing the very thing that Jesus had apprehended him for. He wasn't doing it. I'm sure he wasn't idle. I know he wasn't sitting on his hands. Maybe that's where he improved in his tent-making abilities so that he could fund himself through his missionary journeys. And I'm sure he continued to pour over the Old Testament texts. And I'm sure that he learned how to understand how to relate to the Gentile believers that were in Tarsus, because there were many there. And I'm sure he continued to go to the synagogue, but we don't have record of any of that. All we know is that these were the silent years as far as the Bible record is concerned in Paul's life. And I can remember when I first learned this years ago, a young pastor, I started my first church when I was 25 years old, Back in the day when 25 years old was kind of old for a Calvary Chapel guy to start a church. There, we, some of us were starting them at 19, 20 years of age. And, uh, you know, it was, a, it was hard. Because there was so much of me that needed to die and so much I needed to learn at the same time. And so discouragement was, was plentiful in those days. But when I learned that... Saul Paul was in his hometown of Tarsus for eight to ten years. And that the very thing that he wanted to do so much and that the Lord had called him to do wasn't being done as far as the biblical record is concerned. I drew great encouragement from that. And I realized, you know, there is a work the Lord wants to do in me that's just as important as the work he wants to do through me. And that's when I learned contentment. And then it's up to you, Lord. I just want to make myself available. It's up to, you, up to you what that looks like. And the scope of influence, that's up to you. And the gifts that you give me, that's up to you. Small church, large church, medium-sized church, no church. It's up to you. doesn't matter. All I want to do, all I need to do, is to follow you and let you work in my heart day after day, year after year. And I'm sure that Saul, Paul, learn some of that as well. There's no doubt from the narrative of Acts 22, his retelling of his testimony, that Saul had to be stripped of self-sufficiency. That's a big thing in anyone's ministry. We have to be stripped of self-sufficiency. Because self-sufficiency breeds pride if there's any level of success. And pride is the first of the seven deadly sins. Very important that we not be hung up on ourselves. When Paul wrote to the Romans, he said, I'm writing this to every one of you, not to think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God has given to each one of us the measure of faith. And that's what, that's what Saul Paul needed to learn. That's what I need to learn. Later he would write to the Corinthians again and he said, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God who made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. 
He made us sufficient. Our sufficiency doesn't come from ourselves. And I love, again, what Ray Steadman writes in his book, Authentic Christianity, about this. He, he defines it this way. What Saul discovered, what Paul discovered, was that everything comes from God and nothing comes from Paul. Nothing comes from Paul, but everything comes from God. And trying to get at that nugget of truth and get that nugget of truth into my heart, that's one of the great journeys of faith that any Christian can undertake. Well, the church multiplies, verse 31 tells us, but we find out that Saul's no longer needed. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Notice what happened when Saul was ushered out of Jerusalem and headed back to his hometown of Tarsus. Saul thought, this, I'm your opportunity, Lord. But the Lord takes him out, sends him away, and the church explodes. Judea, Galilee, Samaria. Now they had peace. Saul's not around. <laughs> They're edified because the Lord didn't need him. And walking in the fear of the Lord, come to the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. You know, that's not a real ego-pleasing reality for any of us to realize that if we leave and the Lord directs us out, it might be better in that situation with me being gone than it was when I was there. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't do anything to stroke the ego, but big deal. If he takes me out of this place, that means he's just got another place for me. And it's not like he needs us. He doesn't. One of the great doctrines of Scripture is the doctrine of the self-sufficiency of God. He's an independent, all-sufficient, completely self-sufficient being who doesn't need anything. He doesn't need you. doesn't need me. He doesn't need my worship. He doesn't need me to tell him how great he is. That doesn't do anything for his ego. It doesn't improve his day. doesn't make him think better of himself. He knows these things about himself. He gives us worship for the very purpose of being able to identify who he is as we worship. Because his greatest pleasure is to communicate himself to us. Not because he needs it. He doesn't need anything. But he wants us. He doesn't need our prayers. Did you know that he doesn't need our prayers? But he wants us to pray because then he can partner with us in asking him to do things that he wants to do in his world. And the joy that we get when he answers prayer and the joy that we receive when we see God at work, the Lord did that and we get excited. That's what the Lord's after. So he doesn't need anything. And Saul, of course, was going to learn that. And I wonder, <laughs> news travels fast in countries and situations like in Saul's day, Paul's day. You know, even without Facebook and emails and text messages, news traveled very, very fast. I've seen that happen in the mission field situations. You know, we were in one place, and my son was with me. He's a pastor, and he was, he was uh, doing a rap thing for this group of Indian pastors at this large 3,000 people were there, this evangelistic crusade. So he, he decided to do a rap thing for them. They couldn't understand it, but, but, uh, he did it and he had this, this thing going, you know, this beat going and they got their Indian drums going and it was really cool. And so we got on a bus ride after that four, four hour bus ride to a remote place that you know, who knows where that was. So my son and I and the other brother that was with us, we were sitting there in the front waiting for the seminar to start. We were teaching a seminar. And uh, and we were just talking about it. And I made a comment. And, and there weren't very many people in the church building yet where the seminar was being held. I made a comment to my son. I said, that was really cool. <laughs> what was going on back there at that other place? You know, when you were rapping and, and you were saying, when I say, hey, you say, ho. And that's what they got into. And I say, hey, and you say, so I said, that was really cool when you said, hey, and what, and what they said. And as soon as I said that to my son, in the back of the room, 
there was a, a small group. As soon as I said, hey, they said, oh. <laughs> they were there. They, they, either they were there or they'd heard about it. Four hours separated by this dirt road bus ride. No telephone calls. I don't know how they found out. News travels fast. So I'm just wondering what happened with Saul. He's in Tarsus now. Is he getting wind of what's going on back in Judea and Samaria and Jerusalem? How the churches are growing and taking off and just doing great? And he's not there? How did that make him feel? I'm sure it made him feel great because his purpose and his focus was to glorify Jesus. And that's what was happening. You know, this is part of what happened, all of these things, to make Saul, Paul. Saul means asked for. Somebody may have been praying for someone like Saul to rise up. But Paul means little one. And he eventually became little in his own eyes. And that's what the whole thing is, really. This journey of the Christian life. Just like John the Baptist said, I must decrease but he must increase. And that's true in my life. So each of us right now is being prepared for what's next. I'm 69 years old. What's next? Well, I'm in my 70th year. I've already started it. (laughs) I'm excited about that. And I'm going to be 71 if the Lord tarries and 72 and 73. So there's something going on in those years that I don't know about yet. Right now, I'm being prepared for that. And in the meantime, I get to do stuff today. It's pretty awesome. Right now. In fact, if you ever get a chance to listen or read uh, Chuck Smith's autobiography, Pastor Chuck, uh, who was my pastor in Costa Mesa for years, uh, his autobiography was actually, his son, Chuck Jr., wrote it. But uh, Chuck Sr., you know, told, told them, told the story. But the theme of that autobiography is God always prepares his vessels for the next thing. And it's the story of his development as a man and as a pastor. He always prepares his vessels. So whatever he's doing in my life today, if it's new and it's fresh and it's uh, maybe different than what was going on last year in my life, He's using this. This is something that's preparation for what's coming up in the future. And that outlook in life is so exciting to realize that the work of God never ends. And he's always, always working in us, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Isn't he? It's amazing. So as it was with Saul Paul, so it is with you and with me. Let's pray. Let's take this time of prayer just to make a a silent, quiet surrender to the processes of God. Let's let him have his way in us because his way is perfect. Thank you, Lord. I know a pastor who likes to say, The thing about this Christian life is that it's daily. (laughs) And it's so true. So, Lord, today, this day, would you just work in us in order that you might fulfill your plan today and what you would have us do today, what you'd have us be today. Not only work in us, Lord, but work through us. And thank you for how you're preparing us for the next stage, the next phase, the next season of our lives. We bless you, Lord. We bless you for your purposes. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.